a scroll with seven seals. The scroll and the lamb. Chapter 5. In the right hand of one sitting, of the one sitting on the throne, I saw a scroll that had writing on the inside and on the outside, and it was sealed in seven places. I saw a mighty angel ask with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or see inside it. I tried hard because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or see inside it. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop crying and look. The one who is called both the lion from the tribe of Judah and King David's great descendants has won the victory. He will open the book and its seven seals. Then I looked and saw a lamb standing in the center of the throne that was surrounded by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb looked as if it had once been killed. It had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God uh, sent out to all the earth. The lamb went over and uh, took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. After he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders knelt down before him. Each of them had a harp and uh, a gold bow, full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Then they sang a new song. You are worthy to receive the straw and open its seals, because you were killed. And with your own blood you bought for God people from every tribe, language, nation, and race. You let them become kings and serve God as priests, and they will rule on earth. As I looked, I heard a voice of a lot of angels around the throne and voices of the living creatures and of the elders. There were millions and millions of them, and they were saying in a loud voice, The Lamb who was killed is worthy to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. Then I looked, all beings in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, offer uh, praise. Together, all of them were saying, praise, honor, glory, and strength forever and ever to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The four living creatures said, Amen. 
while the elders knelt down and worshipped. Here ends the the reading. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, as we have a picture of the elders who fell down before you and worshipped you, Lord, we have become so comfortable in our spiritual walk that we do not see the need to do this anymore. Lord, fill us with that desire and that passion and that need to want to fall flat before you and worship you and acknowledge you as the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and glory and honor and power forever and ever. And Lord, that we would know that you are worthy. You are the the Lamb that was slain. You are the one to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. And you are the one to be praised to receive every praise that we have. And so, Lord, as we ask your Spirit to speak to us today, will you open our ears? For we do have ears. Let us hear what the Spirit says to us, the Church. For your sake and for your glory. Amen. So as we can see on the map which is in front of us, today we are dealing and we've done the recap um, before we did the scripture reading in Revelation 5. So let's look at... Firstly, an overview of the seven letters and what they entail. So they they have a common pattern. The Lord Jesus Christ addresses and speaks to each church and he identifies himself. He says, this is who I am, the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. And he also knows the condition of the church. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. There's a challenge and there's a reproach followed by a promise. And in all these seven letters, as we will also see in the letter to Smyrna today, he includes the words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this sometimes is either written before the promise or after the promise. And so here too, with the seven letters, we have different views. Some interpret the churches as representing seven different periods in history of the church, from the time of Paul until Jesus returns. And some are of the opinion that the letters have a prophetic purpose disclosing the seven phases of the spiritual history of the church. And we'll look at the names of the different 
churches and see what that means and that actually fits into the the history and the spiritual connection that it has. And others write that the seven churches preview the history of the global church. All writers do agree that these seven churches actually existed, and they did. And we also see that John the Apostle, as he was writing, that these churches was in existence at that time when Jesus spoke to him and said, these are the things you need to write down. And though they were actual churches in that time, there is also spiritual significance for us that we can learn from this message that Jesus is giving them. And the first purpose of the letters could be was to communicate with the churches at that time and meet their needs at the time. What is Jesus saying to them? He says, I know your affliction. Remember, Smyrna was a church that was persecuted like no other church ever in history. And so he speaks about their need. The second purpose is to reveal seven different types of individual churches throughout history, which we've mentioned before. And then a possible third purpose is to use the seven churches to foreshadow seven different periods in the history of the church, which we're going to look at as well. But the problem with this view is you can actually apply it to any church in any time of history because of the churches splitting up, as we will see in the historical reference and the history of the church as it developed. And so although there are um, maybe some truth to the seven churches representing seven eras, there's a lot of speculation about this. But our focus should be on what is God saying to us today? And so when we look at the historical prophetic view of the church, we see that Ephesus, the one at the bottom, was named the Apostolic Church, which came into existence um, AD 30 to 100, which were, that was the time when the apostles um, were the church planting and, and the time until the last one died, but John was the only one that escaped um, being martyred and being killed for his faith. Smyrna, we know as the persecuted church, AD 100 to 313, the most vicious persecution, five million Christians died during the, um, at that church and during that time in, in Smyrna. And then, um, so, so the reason why they were persecuted is because the emperor was Roman and he and the Jews at that time living there hated the Christians. So the, it was not politically correct to be a Christian. And so they were wiped, wiped out. So then Constantine became converted. He was, um, came from um, th that regime of, of, of a hierarchy, but he got converted by reading the word and then therefore Christianity was accepted and people became quite comfortable 
in their faith again. Because we need to remember that when we, when we struggle, when we are persecuted, when we um, um, suffer, something happens. We are purified. We are cleansed. We get an image and a picture and an understanding of God that is completely different to what it was before. So what happened next was the church became very comfortable and it became extremely corrupt. And Thyatira is seen as the Papal Church, which is the Roman Catholic Church, from AD 590 until 1517. And so here is the split between the commoner, the, the congregations, and the priest, where they wear all um, different attire, and they saw themselves um, higher and more elite than the normal person in the pew. And also the big difference is that they believed at the communion that the bread and the wine actually became the blood and the body of Christ. So there was this huge separation between the clergy and the people who came to worship. And it was also during this time where um, people were not allowed to read the Bible and they were not allowed, they didn't have direct access, it was taught, um, to Christ to speak as Christ as the mediator. They had to go and sit in a little booth and pay for their sins and then the priest would absolve them. Um, very corrupt and absolutely horrific. Sardis, um, in this time there was a, a young man, um, Martin Luther, who, came, who was a Roman, a Roman Catholic priest and who came out of that also by reading scripture and being converted um, started the Reformation, we said, no, the Holy Spirit is our teacher and every one of us can read the Bible because that's what the Bible teaches us. And so he, uh, he was persecuted for that as well and he suffered because, and there is the start of the Reformation Church and the Presbyterian Church falls into that category of um, Reformation. And then we see that um, the Philadelphia Church was seen as the missionary church in AD 1730 to 1900. And this was, in a sense, an era where there was an open door um, and obviously the breakaway from the Roman Catholic Church and also the, the, the breakaway of, um, um, from the Protestant Church as well where people started teaching more on the Holy Spirit and an open door and the gospel just went out. And this was a time where the gospel was shared um, like in no other era of history before. It was known as the missionary church. And Laodicea is known as the apostate church and this means that we, um, we are backslidden or we are um, falling away from our faith. And this was generated by liberal theology and Germany was very instrumental in this time where they were teaching um, a different kind of theology. And I think that this is the era that we are still in today um, where um, people do not depend upon the Holy Spirit but 
they depend upon people making decisions instead of us going on our face saying, Lord, where are we going? What are we doing? Teach us. Guide us. And so, um, so we see the different eras. And then, obviously, all of us know, even when we look at our own names, that it has meaning. And a lot of families give names to, to people um, because it has a specific and a deep meaning for them as well. And so it was with these cities as well. Um, when we come to Ephesus, we see that it means desired. And these people had a great desire and a passion for the Lord. And they really branched out and they touched the lost. Um, Smyrna it comes from the word myrrh, which is an embalming um, oil cream when they embalm the dead. And remember, myrrh was also one of the gifts that Jesus got when he was in the stable. So that was a prophetic sign of that one day um, Jesus will also die as well. And um, Pergamum is um, called thoroughly married because when the church became a state church with the Emperor Constantine who got converted, the church and state married. They became one. And that's when the church became comfortable. So everybody was just a Christian. Whether you believed in Jesus or were saved or born again, everybody. Um, and so that's what the name means, a thoroughly married. And that's the marriage between state and church. And so Thyatira is the purple church, means a perpetual sacrifice, meaning sacrificing Christ over and over again to do with the communion because the Bible teaches us that Christ suffered and died once and for all as a sacrifice for our sins. And so um, the perpetual sacrifice is that they were sacrificing, meaning they were sacrificing Christ continually. So that's what it mean, meant um, as well. And Sardis, the um, Reformation church, means those escaping, those who escaped from the Roman Catholic Church and are now free to read the Bible, free to receive the Holy Spirit. And then Philadelphia means love, um, the missionary church who shared the love of Christ. And Laodicea means people ruling, which is the same as when we say, um, uh, for instance, the parties that are that the world and the secular world is saying um, should have a democratic rule. There it works very well, but in the church a democratic rule does not work because it is only God. Christ is the head of the church and the Holy Spirit leads us. But Laodicea means people ruling, meaning that people kind of rule the Holy Spirit out of the church and they... Um, because when, when, when I read the scripture of the elders falling before the Lord, um, I pray that we as a church will have that desire to, to want to, to, to cry out to God and say, God, be my everything. Um, let me be totally dependent upon you. And so this place, Smyrna, today is called Isma. Very wealthy city, as we see. It's a seaport, huge business sense movement of goods going from Athens backwards and forwards. And the Jews and the Romans that were there, we, we mentioned before, they, um, they persecuted the Christians and they were not 
um, they were not happy with them there during that time. And so when we read about, and we most probably have seen in movies where they throw people into the arena where there are lions, this is actually what happened to the Christians at that time. Christians were thrown for the entertainment of those in leadership. Um, Christians were thrown into um, sort of a lion's den in an arena where people watched and they were eaten alive. It sounds horrific. People were, were either dipped or, or covered in tar and they were set alight. Um, people were boiled in oil and John escaped that specific um, persecution um, and um, the Lord saved his life and obviously for a purpose of um, writing um, revelation. But we see that in large numbers the Christians were sacrificed and um, they were burnt at the stake. And there was one bishop um, during this time, his name was Polycarp, and they said to him, um, renounce your faith and you will live. And he says, no, I cannot renounce my faith. Um, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And then they said, but we're going to burn you at the stake. So he said, that is fine. And then normally they would um, put nails um, to the people and nail them to the wood and obviously put the burning things that they have around them. But what happened was they set it alight and the fire actually did not engulf him, but it formed sort of around him, sort of an oval and then actually, he didn't die, but he was then stabbed to death. When we read verse 8 in chapter 2, we see that to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. And we see here, Jesus is introducing himself. And the way that Jesus speaks to the churches at that time is exactly what they needed to hear. Whatever they were going through, whatever was relevant for them at that time, that is what Jesus addressed by introducing himself, I am the first and the last, the living one. He speaks about the one who was dead and is now alive. So he's the resurrected one, the one who overruled and conquered death. The one who has the last word to say. Let me just say that if you are facing struggles at the moment, Jesus knows. Jesus knows what you are going through. Other people might not realize because we don't often speak or trust to tell someone else. Because we make ourselves vulnerable. But Jesus knows. And he's saying that to you today. I know what you're going through. I know what your affliction is. And so here he's reassuring them. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. This was a very, very poor church. They didn't have a fancy building. They didn't have lights, they didn't have toilets, they didn't have water. Um, they were just, their wealth is that 
they worshipped God. And because of that persecution and that suffering that they went through, they were as pure as gold. The finest gold that we can think of. And so when we struggle and when we go through suffering, this is the purpose of that. Not because God wants to punish us, but because God wants to bring us to a place where we are as pure as gold as well. Jesus knows your heartache. Jesus sees every tear that you weep when it's dark and nobody is seeing and nobody is looking. There is not one single thing in your life that Jesus does not know. The Christians were blamed actually for everything. It's written in a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. If there was pestilence, if there was an earthquake, if there was anything that went wrong that affected their harvest or their animals, they just blamed the Christians and persecuted them for that. The innocent suffered and the stories obviously spread. Jesus says to them, I know. I know what you're going through. You look poor, but you are rich. You don't have the earthly wealth that others have, but you are rich. Because the life you are living now on earth is just temporary. It will just be in a breath. But the second death is your spiritual, eternal life. He's talking about the eternal things that give us that wealth. In Matthew 5, verse 10, we read, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, he says to them. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for ten days. But be faithful even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. It speaks about the eternal spiritual life that we will have. Way above any expectation that we have. It speaks about the Jews who are the synagogue of Satan. It doesn't mean that they were devil worshippers, but it means that they were blinded to the truth of Christ. And many who thought they were doing God a favor because they did not want to believe the truth, they thought the law was what was right. They think they are a synagogue of God, but in the meantime they are a synagogue of Satan. But they were not even aware of it. They stubbornly refused to believe the good news. 
Is there a message for you and me and for the church in this? Sometimes we get so used to doing certain things that should not be that we are not aware that we are not pleasing God. Verse 10 says, do not be afraid. I tell you, in Luke it says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that cannot do no more. Because they might be able to kill them physically, but they cannot kill them spiritually. Because it says, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those that's going to physically take your body away. But I, the first and the last, am the one who has your life, eternal life, in my hands. Killing the body is the first death, and we will all who believe in Christ share in that. And we know that when we look at these letters, there are some corrective things, there are some negative things, there are some encouraging things, but here in Smyrna there's no correction. There's just this encouragement, but also challenging them for what is going to happen. Can you imagine belonging to, to, to a, a church and every Sunday you come to church and you see, okay, James is not here anymore. Why is James not here? Because he burnt at the stake. Next Sunday we come, Harrison is not here. Why is Harrison not here? Because they threw him to the lions. Can you imagine not only the suffering that they were going through from the people around them, but the suffering of losing their brothers and sisters? So for me, this is a point where we can say, spiritually, where are our brothers and sisters? Are we concerned about them? Are we praying for them? Are we encouraging them to come back so that we can worship with them as well? Yes, there are many reasons why we really cannot be here. But let this be a reminder to us that we are not suffering like this church, but we are suffering in different ways. So let us encourage our brothers and sisters to keep the faith, to not fear. We are living in a time where we want to please ourselves in just having a good time. And there's nothing wrong with that. But let us not forget that we need to at times get down on our knees and flat on our face and pray and seek God's face. Because he who has suffered in the flesh is done with sin. Would you like to sign up to a church that the people are dying every week?
I'm sure not everybody's going to come shouting, me, 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 I want to belong to your church because I can see people are dying. It's a completely different sense of faith. If I think about this beautiful love letter, the Bible that the Lord has given us, I would like to think about a personal word for each and every one of us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But let us be fearless. Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer, in verse 10 we read. Because Christ is Lord over all of life's circumstances. We have nothing to fear. Paul wrote that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Fear is a natural human response, but we live supernatural lives through the power of Christ in us. Do not fear. Be faithful. As Jesus said to this church, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. And given the intensity of the persecution in Smyrna, I believe Christ was saying, yes, you may lose your life for my sake, but be faithful to the end. What does faith mean for us? We have to ask ourselves. What is it the faith that took them through everything that they went through? When you have faith, it leads you into being faithful. So what is faith if we want to describe it? It's a complete trust or confidence in someone or something. It means belief, a firm persuasion, assurance, firm conviction, faithfulness. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance that the Lord is working in our lives, in the lives of everybody else, even if we cannot see it. No matter what the situation, God is always working. Faith and repentance go together. They are inseparable. Because this is genuine conversion. Paul speaks of repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord the Messiah in Acts 20 verse 21. Faith is the act whereby a person lays hold of God's resources in Christ, becomes totally obedient to what he has prescribed, and putting aside all of our self-interest and self-reliance to trust him completely. And it is an unqualified surrender of the whole of one's being in dependence upon him. Trusting him completely, relying upon him for all things. And it's not just a mental 
confirmation to the facts and realities of the truth that we're reading here, it must come from a very deep inner conviction. Because what does James 2.19 say to us? The demons also believe. Proverbs 28.26 says, he, that, he or she that trusts in his own heart is a fool. But he who's, who walks wisely will be delivered. And this we know from the Bible. That the beginning of wisdom is to know God in Christ. Amen. Let us pray.